You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. To even have the slightest notion that there's a big brother element of being watched simply does not work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, I speak with Abik Mitra. We're going to be sharing the findings on Code 42's 2022 Data Exposure Report. All right, Joe, uh, let's jump right into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story comes from Linda Gandhi. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah. She is at Cleveland.com. Okay. And she has a great story about a lawyer-doctor couple named Sherry and Jim Carney All right. who were targeted by a bench warrant scam. Hmm. Here, let me put on my inner Ben Yellen or my, my Ben Yellen costume. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And tell you what uh, what a bench warrant is. Because I actually looked this up. Because yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, what is a bench warrant? A bench warrant is a warrant that gets issued for somebody who doesn't show up for a court date. Yeah. Right? This is different from an arrest warrant, which is something that a police officer requests. Mm-hmm. I'd like to arrest that person. Uh, I have evidence, and you go present that. But at a bench warrant, you missed a court date, essentially. Uh, it's very common for bench warrants to be issued for people. Yeah. If they miss a court date. Uh, because that is criminal. You're not supposed to do that. Right. And right. my, my under, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding with a bench warrant is that it's not like they're going to put out a, a posse and a, a hard right. target search on you. It's Get an just APB that, out on Bittner. He no. missed his But the next appearance. time you cross paths with the law, right. yes. that's going to be a bad day for <laughs> you. That is. They're going to run your license and go, you have warrants out. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, an arrest warrant, they're coming for you. A bench warrant, they're generally not going to come for you. Okay. Uh but, you know, you can always take care of it by going and saying, oh, I missed that court date. Sorry. But I don't know how this works. Turn yourself in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ask Ben next time. I will. Next, okay. <laughs> during the next episode of Caveat. I'm sure he listens to this show. He's right now pulling his hair out. Yeah. <laughs> so Sherry gets a call. First off, Sherry is a doctor and Jim is a lawyer. All right. Like Ben. Uh, <laughs> and Sherry gets a call at work and the name on the caller ID says Sergeant Cummings. Okay. And... This person leaves a message asking for a callback. So Sherry calls the person back. Mm-hmm. And when she gets back, she is told by the caller that a subpoena had been served on her. And since she didn't appear in court, now there's a bench warrant out for her arrest. Ah. And the guy says, this is a courtesy call. Because you are a doctor, you can come down to the police station and sign a paper to compare signatures on the subpoena. But we need a credit card number to ensure that you show up. Hmm. <laughs> Right now, the fact that we have guns isn't going to ensure that you show up. We need a credit card number. All right, go on. Now, listeners of our show are already going, hey, that's a red flag. (laughs) I've never had a cop ask me for a credit card number. No, no, no. So here's an interesting side bit of information about Jim and Sherry. They work in the same office building. Hmm. Right? Sherry's mm-hmm. doctor's office is in the same building as Jim's law office. That's convenient for commuting. It is. Yeah. So Sherry runs down to her husband's office, and he gets on the phone call with 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 this guy. And he keeps insisting that he gets a credit card number or she will be arrested right away. Hmm. So 
Jim and Sherry say that she can't leave her patients. She has patients to uh, to see today, and that's not convenient, right? They're, yeah. I think they already know this is a scam. But then the guy goes, well, then you need to go to a bank, get out $8,000, turn it into cryptocurrency, then you can come down to the Westlake police station at your leisure, mm-hmm. right? So you know what will make this all go away? Eight grand in Bitcoin, Dave. <laughs> Okay. 0.015, I don't know. What's Bitcoin at now? 30 grand? I, who knows? It's still, yeah. eight grand of Bitcoin. Uh, and Jim begins to put the caller off, you know, like, you know, uh, I'm starting to get this red flag. And he says, uh, the caller says, I have to stop this now. I've spent too much time with you. Either you get the money to postpone arrest or we'll come by and arrest her immediately. And then uh, we can return the money. Okay. So Jim says he hung up. Right, and then he calls the Westlake Police Department and asks for Sergeant Cummings. Guess what? Hmm. There is a Sergeant Cummings. Oh, and he's pissed, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and the badge number that this caller gave is Sergeant Cummings' badge number. Ah, right. But the uh-huh. person that says no, no, that's not Sergeant Cummings calling you. Right. That's that's some scammer. We're getting a lot of these calls. I'll bet they are. Uh, and they are furious about it. They don't. The uh, the police officers on the phone said, "Nope, we don't want to arrest your wife. That's BS. Don't don't worry about it. Sure, uh, it's not our Sergeant Cummings." So a couple of things that struck me about this scam. Yeah. Uh, first off, a bench warrant is the correct kind of warrant. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Mm. Two, there is a Sergeant Cummings with the correct badge number. Right. So if you went and just did a Google search to see if Sergeant Cummings is legit, right, that would add up. Even if you could look up his badge number. You, you would think, hey, this, this makes more sense. But I think badge numbers are public records, so anybody can get them. Okay. Or anybody can call Sergeant Cummings and go, hey, what's your badge number? I need to file a complaint. And right. I think he has to give it to him, right? <laughs> Could be, yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing that's interesting is during a portion of the call, it was apparent this guy knew Sherry was a doctor. Right. So he's, when, he, when he initiates the call, he says, this is a courtesy call because we know that you're a doctor. Uh, so they have some manner of personal information on Sherry here, mm-hmm. which is kind of disturbing, but there's all kinds of information about us everywhere. Yeah. So when you get a phone call that has all kinds of information about you, you should be aware. Number one, that's already out there. It's not that hard to find. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Neither is a police officer's badge number. And you can just Google the difference between a, a bench warrant and an arrest warrant. Right. I did that this morning when I was looking this show up. Right, <laughs> right. That's important to, to note that I, I did that this morning, and Ben went to five years of, or four years of school. <laughs> so it's practically the same. Practically the same, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> uh, how to know this is a scam? Law enforcement will never call you about a warrant. They just will not do it. Um, you know, everybody that has a warrant against them is a flight risk. Mm-hmm. If, if you have an arrest warrant out for you. The uh, Johnny Law is not calling you and going, oh, by the way, we have an arrest warrant out for you. We're coming to get you if you don't give us money. Mm-hmm. They're just going to show up. Yeah. Uh, because they're, they're, they're legally allowed to do that. Right. Law enforcement will never, ever ask you for cryptocurrency. Yes. <laughs> that, that is, there is no bigger red flag than that. No government agency in the United States does business in cryptocurrency. Right. They'll never demand it. They'll never ask for it. Yes. You may be able to pay taxes in it someday, but I don't know. Probably yeah, not. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably. You probably have to pay your taxes with a check. Yeah. Uh, and you don't need to give a credit card number to make sure that you show up. 
right? No. If you need to show up somewhere, law enforcement will make sure that you show up somewhere. <laughs> That's right. Right? Westlake Police has a public information officer. His name is Jerry Vogel, and he spoke about the warrant scam. Uh, we tell people that you cannot pay for court costs, tax bills, fines, warrants, and IT help with gift cards, Bitcoin, and even Venmo. Yeah. Uh, when you see an unexpected phone call or a pop-up on your computer that says you need to pay money, tell them you're going to independently find their phone number and check out their story, then hang up. Just hang up the phone. Yeah. Once you say that, I'm going to independently verify your story and then call you back uh, or call the number that I find and hang up. That's that's probably going to be it. They're not going to call you back. They're, they're no, they know, these scammers know, okay, this person's not a good, uh, good person to run this scam on. On to the next number. Right. And it's also worth noting that it very likely probably said on the incoming caller ID that it was Sergeant Cummings from the sheriff's it, office. It did. It said Sergeant Cummings. Yes. That's easy to spoof. Right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting story. Lots of red flags all throughout that one. Right. Good, good, good lessons uh, to learn there. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, my story this week uh, comes uh, from the folks over at Pixem. That's P-I-X-M. Uh, Joe, speaking of looking things up, I had to look up how to pronounce Pixem. <laughs> I didn't know if it was Pixum or I would have said Pixum. Pixum. Yeah, That's it's Pixum. 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 Okay. Uh, I suggest to all companies who have unusual spellings of their company name uh, on the about uh, page of your website, the first thing it should say is how to, how to pronounce, pronounce our your name. name. <laughs> That's right. How to <laughs> pronounce our silly little, name. Little tip tip there, uh, free of charge. So the folk, the researchers over at Pixem uh, have been tracking a Facebook credential harvesting campaign that is also um, uh, refers people to ads. So it's sort of two parts. They're they're harvesting Facebook credentials, and then they use those credentials to trick people to going to ad web pages, and that's where they make their money. Mm. So in this case, uh, they are using um, lookalike login pages. So they get you or me to visit this fake login page, looks just like Facebook, right? and then they harvest your credentials, and then they use those credentials to log into your account, and then they spam all of your friends on Facebook using Facebook Messenger. I see. Now, a couple interesting things here. Because they are using Facebook Messenger, it's sort of a you know, call is coming from inside the house thing. Your friends all get the message from Facebook Messenger from you. Right. So that looks legit. Yep. Right? Um, but another interesting uh, wrinkle here, they're using um, some legit services that generate URLs uh, to be able to use some features within Facebook. And, and, and I'll admit, I, I don't have a complete understanding of all the technical stuff going on behind the scenes, but evidently there are services, uh, they list a few here, glitch.me, famous.co, amaze.co, funnelpreview.com. Uh, and these are websites that are used to deploy and generate URLs for legitimate uses, but bad guys use them too because right. they're available for rapid deployment. And what this does is if you have a security system that is blocking certain URLs, this defeats that because you're generating, you're using this legit service uh, that can't be blocked because it's a legit service and right. it'll cause a headache if for your organization if it's blocked. Uh -huh. So they use this legit service to 
to spin up a new unique URL that will not be blocked because it's coming from a unique service. Right. Does that make sense? Have yes. I explained that well enough? Yes. <laughs> okay. But eventually you're going to have to hit the URL of the malicious site, right? Or the Yes, and evidently these folks use a number of redirects. So the the initial link is legit, right? And that keeps Facebook or your local uh, malware detection system from seeing it, right? But then once you hit the legit one, then it's redirect, redirect, redirect until you get to the place that they're trying to send you to. And in this example, for they used uh, like a Walmart survey campaign, right? You know, and and that's how they make their money. Dave, I actually have a serious question here. Yes. How many redirects is too many redirects, do you think? <sighs> that, mm, more than one? More than one. Because if I'm going to go to like Bitly or something, right. I'm going to go to Bitly, and then Bitly's going to redirect me to whatever, like the cyberwire.com. Yeah. Right? If, if Bitly redirects me to something that then again redirects me, right? Because think about this. If, if a, if, if I have a business and I, I I create a Bitly link to that business and then I move the business's web page, so I redirect from the old domain to the new domain, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Now I have two redirects, mm-hmm. right? But how many redirects should I have at most? What I mean, I can think of a legitimate use case for maybe two or three redirects, but yeah. maybe after that, we just say, no, we're done. And well, I know that browsers will say too many redirects, stop. Right. I was just going to say that. Sometimes the the browser will either f- – so two things I've seen. In some cases, at the moment of redirect, your browser will say, hey, this is a redirect. And I, and we paused here. Right. Right. And just say, you know, in five seconds, you're going to be redirected. If this is not what you want, <laughs> now's the time to pull the ripcord. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's right. Um, but then other times, exactly what you're describing, which is it'll just stop and it'll say, and actually, you know what, For I, I think I've noticed that most on my mobile device. It'll pop up and it'll say too many redirects. I'm not taking you there. Right. It's not, this is not good. Right. Nothing good is going to come of this. I'd like to know what that number of too many redirects is. Are we looking at a number like 16, 20, whatever? Yeah. Or are we looking at a number like five? Right. I don't know the answer to that. It's yeah, a good me question. Neither. Yeah. If any of our listeners know or have more of a, a – a knowledgeable technical description of how this works under the hood. Please let us know. We'd, yeah, we'd love to know and uh, share it with everybody. I used to know everything, Dave. Now, now, <laughs> now I don't know. Now, now I'm the old, angry old man trying to use technology. Yeah, and, the older you get, the less you, you, re, you the, the more wisdom you have to realize the less you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe so that's the, what it is. The researchers uh, seem to think that these folks are Chinese. Mm-hmm. That's the source of all of this. And their end game is just to get ad revenue. The end game is to get ad ad revenue. Uh, they the 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 folks who are selling this this uh, sort of malware as a service are claiming to have made over fifty nine million dollars. Really. Hmm. Uh, nice. But uh, the researchers think they're probably exaggerating. So, but if they're exaggerating book, by a factor of ten, it's still yeah, a pretty good payday. <laughs> it's still a pretty good payday, yeah, for being up to no good. Right. So, uh, but let's uh, get to the practical stuff here. What are some of the best ways to avoid this? Well, Dave, this is not going to happen to me because I use my YubiKey to secure my Facebook account. There you go. So that's number one. Yeah. Multi-factor authentication. Right. If, especially with a uh, with something that can't be socially engineered like a YubiKey or a Google Titan 
or whatever uses the FIDO Alliance's uh, standards. Right, because if you just use like an SMS code, right, that they can, can be, still harvest that. They can still harvest that and just say, mm-hmm. hey, what's your SMS? We sent you an SMS code, and they're logging into Facebook for you to steal your credentials right. uh, on the back end. Sure, yeah, that'll work. Even the uh, That'll also work with the, with the one-time password code that comes up. Mm-hmm. So those, those can be engineered out of you, but a, a challenge response from a cryptographic protocol is much more difficult to, uh, to, to fake. Or to harvest, right. Uh, right? So, in fact, I'm not aware of any any attacks that have been successful in that. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's that's number one: multi-factor authentication, and the best that you can do. Um, uh, what else can you do? Um, hmm, you know, what, I mean, I would say complex passwords, but if you're if you're being targeted by something like this, and you click on the link and go go enter your complex password, mm-hmm. they still have it. So that's not really going to help. Really, the only thing that's going to help you is. Uh, as from being the victim of the account takeover is the multi-factor authentication. Now, if you are a user of Facebook and you get a <laughs> and you get a suspicious message, because my son got one of these just the other day from his grandmother. Oh, uh-huh. And, uh huh. And he goes, "Oh, uh, my grandmother would would like me to look at this web page." And I'm like, "Don't click on that link." <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> her her account frequently has these kind of issues. Yeah, um, and. And a lot of times she actually sends out spam messages herself. You know, it's, you know, it's the nature, nature of being uh, a grandmother, of being a grandmother. Right. (laughs) I see. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. I know we're getting that here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she, I mean, it's just the way she uses Facebook. Sure. Now his other grandmother doesn't do that. Uh, You know, only one of his grandmothers. I'm not going to tell you which one it is because I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to seem like I'm picking favorites. You like sleeping indoors. (laughs) Right. Yeah. All right. right. (laughs) Good. I think everybody knows now. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Yeah. Those are the two things. To prevent your account from being taken over, use multi-factor authentication. And uh, to if someone one of your friends' accounts does get taken over, just don't fall for it. Just yeah. you know, maybe maybe make a phone call and go, "Hey, I think your account was taken over. I'm getting all these kind of weird messages from your account." Yeah, uh, you uh, know, it's just as easy to clone a Facebook account and then send messages to people once or once you have friend requests. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's advantageous to take over an existing account. Yeah, that much that's much much many, better. Many many more folks on it. Yeah, and two, I'll I'll also just give a little plug here to the Pixim people, um, who they you know they claim that their solution would catch this. They they use um, uh, computer vision to analyze pages. So ah. rather than just doing analysis of text or metadata or things like that, they'll actually look at images. Right. And basically, you know, and they'll sort say, of, hey, this looks like it's a Facebook login page. Right. Because it's probably cloned from Facebook. Exactly. Right? And so, this is not the Facebook URL or any of any of Meta's owned URLs. So right. red flag, please. Right. Exactly. So, you know, hats off to them. If, yep. if it works. If it works, it's good. good. <laughs> That's right. Use it. All right. I will have a link to that in our show notes. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from William, who writes, this fake invoice had no attachment or link, so it's clearly meant to get the victim to call the number, which is probably correct. Okay. I'm assuming to try to get an authorization to transfer funds. Ah. It could be. Uh, One quick red flag is that there's no indication of who the seller might be. In fact, it's worded as if PayPal might be the seller, and PayPal doesn't sell anything. 
They just facilitate <laughs> just their service. Just their service, right? Okay. I get emails like this from time to time, and I could see this causing a big headache for someone who's unaware of this scam. Uh, my favorite part about this about this email is who it comes from, Dave. <laughs> These these guys didn't do the cleanup of from their last uh, scam campaign. So who's it from? <laughs> it's from tax invoice. Tax invoice. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess they were doing some tax invoice scamming before right. they got around to their PayPal scamming. Right. Yeah. It's funny as as much as they they take time. As some groups take time with all of their spear phishing. Others' attention to detail is not at the top of their game. That's right. It's all about the numbers for those guys. All right. So let me see here. So this says, Dear William, you've sent $871 to PayPal. It may take 24 hours for this transaction to appear on your account. Order date, May 28th, 2022. Product, Dell G15 Gaming Laptop 11 Gen Intel Core i5 11260H, 12 megabyte cache, 6 cores, 12 threads, up to 4.4 gigahertz turbo, 8 gigabytes, 512 gigabytes, dark shadow gray. Items, $768.99. Shipping and handling, $52.37. Subtotal, $821.36. Sales tax, $49.72. Order total, $871.08. Shipping method, standard. Thank you for shopping with us. Your order will reach you within three to five working days. You'll receive a tracking link once the order is shipped. You can check the status of your order in case of any issues with this transaction. Call our customer support care for further assistance. Thanks and regards, Team PayPal. (laughs) Now I have another uh, red flag here. Yeah. No self-respecting gamer is going to buy an i5 laptop for gaming <laughs> with only eight megs of RAM. Okay. Uh, hey, play Tet- you can play Tetris. Sure. You can play Tetris. That's right. <laughs> you might be able to play like the old Half-Life uh, game on here. You know, if you get the, the orange box, you can play that on sure. here. Probably smoke that pretty well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're not playing uh, any modern game on this Yeah. Uh, with any – Right. First off, it doesn't even tell you what the graphics processor is in this in this email. Uh-huh. These scammers don't know. Don't know their target audience. Actually, they, <laughs> they do know their target audience. Their target audience isn't gamers. A gamer is going to see this and go, nope. But the person that's going to see this and react to it is the, the person who goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't order this. Mm-hmm. I didn't order that. Let me call this number. And uh, you should never call that number. It's never. actually a pretty cheap computer, you know, 870 yeah. some dollars. It is. For- for a computer, and maybe this all these these may be legit numbers for this Dell laptop. Who knows? Right. Yeah, but we do know that this person did not order it, and so you're right. The whole thing is to get you to call, and that's when they hook you. Yeah, that's that's when the scam begins. Actually, yeah. I guess you could say the scam begins when they send the email, but that's when they that's when the concentrated effort of the scam. You become the un, you get the undivided attention of these scammers, and right. that is something you do not want. All right. Well, our thanks to William for sending this in to us. Uh, We would love to hear from you. You can email us to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com, and we will consider your uh, catch of the day for our show. Uh, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Abik Mitra. He is the head of portfolio strategy at Code42. And we are talking about their latest data exposure report. Here's my conversation with Abik Mitra. 
Yeah, so the, the data exposure report has become somewhat of an annual tradition for Code 42. Um, and I think in particular now, uh, given that we are all living this remote hybrid um, environment that we're in. So the, the purpose of the report, as the name suggests, is really to understand how security teams are facing challenges when it comes to protecting um, corporate data from exposure, leak, or even theft. Um, and this year in particular, there were three key trends that, that really stuck out to us in the, uh, the data exposure report. Um, and I'm going to call this DER just because as a security company, I, I can't but help <laughs> but use an acronym. <laughs> so sure. we're just going to continue calling it DER from here on out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but let's, let's get back to the trends. So, you know, when, when we, the first one should be pretty obvious, right? Which is we definitely noted the, the continued adoption of, of cloud technologies, um, but also a stark spike um, in lack of visibility into them. In fact, we noted a 51% spike since Q3 in 2021. Um, and this is an interesting one because when you think about the fact that we're all remote or hybrid, cloud technologies aren't going away. They're only going to grow. But with that and with the speed of adoption there comes the additional challenge of needing security visibility into them. So that was a, a key insight that definitely caught, uh, caught our attention. The other is the impact of the great resignation. We've, we kind of call this the great resignation now but this is really about departing employees taking IP with them potentially to their next jobs, to a potential competitor. Um, and the, the data from the DER points to the reality that 71% of security practitioners don't know what's leaving with them. And I think you kind of couple that with a couple of other learnings over time, which is for a lot of employees, there's almost this feeling of, I created this data. It's my right to take it along with me no matter where I go. Um, mm. so, so that's certainly a concern that organizations have to deal with. And then I think the last major takeaway here, um, and I think hits the heart of the issue, which is internal misalignment. So we note that between the board, security leadership, as well as security practitioners, there is real misalignment on priority. In fact, over 50% of security practitioners surveyed said that they weren't even consulted by their leaders when their corporate cybersecurity strategy was, was framed up. And I think we kind of get to the heart of the issue, which is 96% of companies acknowledge that they were challenged when it came to protecting data from insider risk. So mm. all in all, um, you know, probably not the most positive, uh, <laughs> positive report if you're an organization trying to protect against insider risk. But there are certain realities, as I mentioned, just with the continued adoption of uh, cloud technologies. Can we take a step back uh, real quick and, and just uh, cover some some definitions? I mean, uh, we, you all at Code42, I know, are really specific about referring to it as insider risk as opposed to insider threats, which I think is, uh, you know, a, another popular term for this. But you all think there's some new there's some nuance here worth explaining. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy you asked that question because it is an important delineation to make for organizations because there is a fundamental difference in approach. So the way I like to explain it is with insider threat, you know, with the very definition, you've almost assumed that somebody is doing something for the purposes of being malicious, right? When you say threat, it kicks off almost a, uh, a an investigation that's completely based on essentially victimizing somebody, right? Before you get to the context of what may have led to that individual doing what they did. 
With insider risk, it works a little different because you're looking at the context. You're looking at all of the key events leading up to what could become an insider threat. But the importance of insider risk is you really get to, as an organization, you, you, you put yourself in a situation where you're now able to understand what may have done, what may have been done maliciously or what may have been done non-maliciously. You know, it turns out that over 50%, over 50% of these data leak type situations are done completely by accident. So it's important mm. for organizations not to go down this path of we're going to control and potentially block you from getting your work done and collaborating because we assume that something happened and that you did something for, for malicious purposes. So we feel like this conversation is shifting more so toward insider risk. And I think that's reality. I think the fact that we're all remote hybrid now I think organizations have to think about risk proactively versus waiting for that, you know, that next press release to hit where they're unfortunately part of the headlines. Yeah. Can we dig in some to uh, this notion of the great resignation? I mean, um, I, I think uh, for older folks like me, um, I think we think of the, the people coming up behind us as perhaps being more job hoppers than our, than my, my generation, uh, you know, Gen X was. And you mentioned that there seems to be a, perhaps a perception of entitlement of, of people taking data with them. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, we asked that question um, in one of our previous um, DER reports. And in that, uh, 63% of those surveyed um, actually acknowledged that they had taken um, IP from a previous job to a new job. Um, and we often joke here that, you know, the other 27% weren't necessarily telling us the truth. Who knows? But I <laughs> right. think everybody to some degree has done this, whether or not they, have, they know that they're doing it rightfully or not. So when we, when we talk about the great resignation, we're really talking about the, I think of it as you're given the keys to the kingdom the moment you join a job, right? Like the moment you are given a username and a password, that's your keys to the kingdom. And that keys to the kingdom could be access to source code access to the roadmap, access to company financials, um, you know, anything that could be detrimental in the hands of somebody else or anything leaked potentially, right? You could be, um, you could be a major uh, studio, not that this ever happens, of course, but you could be a major <laughs> studio where a script for the next big movie is leaked and you have no idea how or, 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 or what happened. I think when, when we talk about the great resignation, we talk about the reality that a lot of people are now in a situation where the job market is hot. People are constantly being enticed by other organizations. Um, and whether they're with organizations for six months to a year, they have access to a lot of data. Probably the biggest issue with the great resignation is gone are the days where you could enforce uh, VPN. Gone are the days where you are going into work and you're kind of subjected just to that network. It was, it was a security practitioner's dream, right? Like you're kind of locked mm. down. But the reality now is not only as a security practitioner do I need to give you tools like Slack or Microsoft OneDrive or Google Drive to do your job, I also now have to balance that with protecting data from leaving because it, it's ridiculously simple for me to just put data onto those uh, cloud repositories and essentially take them with me to my next job. How much of this is a, a cultural issue here of, of making sure that is, I mean, I could imagine even from the point of onboarding new employees of, you know, establishing what the boundaries are, making sure that everybody's on the same page. 
Culture is huge. And it's interesting whenever I hear security teams talk about culture, because it's it's the one term that you wouldn't typically find somebody within security mentioning. But I think right. the re- reality is this, right? We are today onboarded, living our tenor with the company and departing completely in a virtual environment. It is very feasible that nobody in the, the people or HR department even interacts with somebody face-to-face, um, which is good, but it's also scary because you're, you're, you're trusting them with your corporate assets. So when we talk about culture, we really have to talk about trust, right? There is this notion that anytime I am going to be a company that embraces remote or hybrid workforces, I am trusting you. Um, the problem that a lot of folks run into, and again, this kind of goes back to some key data points uh, in the DER, is you know we, we noted that 96% of organizations want to improve their security training. And the reason I talk about training is um, it is a big part of shaping culture. Um, and I'm not talking about like that once a time you, you know, during orientation training or maybe once a quarter, we're talking about point in time training. We're, we're talking about delivering training, particularly in those situations where an employee might be doing something, again, completely accidentally. How nice would it be to get a nudge in that moment, maybe like a module, like a two minute video um, that suggests, hey, notice you're doing this. This is the best practice way of doing it. I have just received something that is easy to digest, just two minutes, and I've course corrected my behavior. And the point of that is that if you do that enough times with different employees, you are helping shape culture. And when we talk about culture, we also have to talk about transparency. One of the things that becomes very important um, whenever, whenever insider risk or monitoring employees is involved is be open with the employee in terms of what is being monitored. I think at this time, like we're all in the midst of this pandemic, to, to, to even have the slightest notion that there's a big brother element of being watched simply does not work. Um, mm. so, so establishing culture is understanding, it's talking, it's treating the end user and everybody, other departments as an ally in insider risk, bringing everybody to the table, so to speak. And then establishing this this sense of a culture where everybody is inheriting that responsibility of protecting your data. You know, you, you all have been uh, doing the research here for the DER for a number of years now. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic was a big uh, uh, event for everyone globally. Is there a sense that we're headed in a different direction now that since the pandemic, you know, we're off – uh, on a sort of a, an adjusted journey? Yeah, definitely. I think the pandemic was um, in many ways accelerated what organizations had already started doing with digital transformation. Certainly mm-hmm. um, our research and even talking to the, the CISO community suggests that a lot of folks were already underway with embracing cloud, uh, just, em- just embracing this notion that you know, in order to recruit, you have to give people the flexibility to work from a location of their choice. So a lot of the building blocks were in place. The, the last piece of this really was a, is building a, a robust data security um, uh, program, if you will. The problem that a lot of organizations ran into is they, they also thought that on this journey, they could also take legacy tools along with them as well tools that were essentially built for the network, built not with remote employees in mind. From that perspective, there's been a bit of an adjustment where organizations have to accept the reality that, you know, employees 
may, may want to work on a network, a network of their choice, may want to not necessarily VPN in. Um, so the challenge, as I often call it, or the, the conundrum with security is, you know, you have to protect data on one hand. And on the other hand, you have to ensure that all of these remote employees um, can continue to collaborate and continue to be productive. So I think more and more organizations are embracing that. Um, there are definitely more solutions, specifically in the insider risk uh, side of the house, which are allowing for that free collaboration and at the same time uh, protecting data. Well, based on the information that you all have gathered here, what are your recommendations for organizations to, to best protect themselves? There are three, three major recommendations. I think the first really comes back to trust and transparency, which is leaders really need to work with security teams, with the extended teams as well. Again, just to bring them to the table and really help understand um, and translate what risk is. I think this is the other thing that gets lost in translation a lot, which is helping the executive or board teams understand and even quantify what risk is. Um, and it, that begs a number of different questions. You know, are you measuring the right metrics? Are you focused on the right metrics? And once you, you can finalize what the right metrics are, it's absolutely key and essential that you can simplify that message to the executive team. Because, you know, if they're not understanding it, that next so desired step, whether it's increased budget for insider risk, really falls flat. So that would be the first part of this journey. The second part is training. Um, being able to educate employees and really empower them and thinking about security training in terms of frequency and, um, you know, the, the, the delivery mechanism itself. Um, we often joke that the, the, the 30 minutes of really poorly acted videos that we're subjected to that have to take quizzes <laughs> on do not really, really get us very far. But I've noticed that organizations that tend to have fun with the trainings um, almost don't take themselves too seriously are the ones that truly make the impact. They're the ones that truly move the needle in terms of like how digestible uh, uh, the message is and just course correcting some of those behaviors over time. Um, and then the last component to this is technology. And you'll notice I mentioned technology last, and that is deliberate. Um, I think a lot of organizations get trapped into leading with this is a technology first problem. It's actually a people and process problem first. Um, and again, going back to the trust and, and, and training component, if you have those building blocks in, in place, you now are in a position to leverage technology um, and build a program um, that can be all about phases. I think a lot of people get scared by this notion of a, of, of a program. But again, going back to the, um, the DER data, um, a lot of folks, in spite of knowing what these risks are, haven't completely made investments into insider risk programs. And that's pretty significant because on one hand, you're aware of these risks, but on the other hand, you're not um, going forward with a program. So the recommendation there is maybe don't even think of it as a program. Think of it as a journey, not a destination, and think of it as phases. Um, we, we, we often talk about being data-centric. But if you put the right pieces in place first, you can really lead that effort of building a program with data. And the data really leads you to, you know, where might your gaps be within the business? Where are your visibility gaps? And once you get to some of those building blocks, you can start building policies and other right-sized uh, response mechanisms to really help you in these situations. What do you think? 
I like this interview, Dave. Yeah. I, I, I like, first off, I like when these reports come out. So yeah. I got to check this report out. One of the key findings in this, in this report is that as cloud usage is increasing, the visibility into that cloud usage is not increasing. Mm. So people aren't paying attention. They're just going, just sign up for it. Let's go. We'll, we'll, we'll worry about the security afterwards. Yeah. Dave, I can tell you from a lifetime of experience, <laughs> worrying about something afterwards is kind of a bad idea. Right. And not just in security. <laughs> no, you know, temporary solutions tend to become permanent solutions. Yeah, they do. Yeah. That's right. And my wife will tell you that about the floor in our kitchen. <laughs> right. <laughs> if boards are not seeking input from their security practitioners when they're developing security policy or strategies, I can almost guarantee you those strategies are garbage. Mm. You know, you as a board member, you should be seeking input from your security team. You pay these people a ton of money right. to do what they're doing. Right. Ask them what they think is important. No, you wouldn't have your board of directors uh, design the new HVAC system. Right, right. right. <laughs> so. You also wouldn't have your board of directors uh, do sales forecasts or, or do strategic business planning without talking to the CTO or the CFO and the C, uh, other C-suite executives. Right, right? sure. And, and those guys are going to go down and involve – you know, accounting and sales and all those other things. Yeah. You, you, why, why are you doing security strategy without the input from your comp, uh, your, your personnel in this? Right. It, that, that is the most flabbergasting thing from this report, I think. And mm. it's probably the most terrifying to me. Okay. I, I just, I can't fathom this. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the things I really, really, really like that Code 42 does here, and Abik talks about this, is talk about the insider risk versus the insider threat. Yeah. Because, 90% of the time, not, I would say more than 90% of the time, when you're compromised by somebody on the inside, they're doing it inadvertently. Mm -hmm. it, they're not being threatening. They're not trying to hurt you. They're just being misled. Right. Uh, they're not being malicious. Right. They're not being malicious. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They're being victimized. And I hope this conversation switches, is is switching from threat to risk. And, and I hope that that's I think that's an important distinction that we need to make. Mm, mm -hmm. um, the idea of IP coming along with the employee. First off, when I write code, I love the code I write. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for me to leave it behind. Right. I, I totally understand <laughs> where this comes from. Yeah. You know, especially if you've done a lot of work that's really generalized and, 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 uh, and applicable to other places. But the truth of the matter is when you signed up for the, for the job, you probably signed an agreement that said everything you do – at least while you're working here, is our intellectual property and you don't have any rights to it, yes. right? There are some companies, I've even signed uh, agreements that said everything you do outside of work is also our property. Mm -hmm. And I've heard of even more draconian things from other people uh, who have been telling me horror stories about this. Right. I think that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, don't, don't make it so that things people do in their own free time becomes your, your intellectual property. Because what if I, as a developer, want to contribute to an open source project? Mm -hmm. Does that become your intellectual property? I don't think you have a good argument there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I've also heard stories of people being very passive-aggressive and going, here's a recipe I came up with. <laughs> Turning that in is intellectual property. <laughs> Which I think is a great way to handle it. Um, but I will tell you, Dave, I have, during job interviews on the phone, had recruiters say to me, hey, can you give us a code sample of something from your office? And I've said, no. <laughs> no, why would you even ask me for that? Right. You know, I think now, if somebody asked me for that now, I mean, this was years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, and I could kind of understand it. But if somebody asked me for that now, I think I'd say, you know what, we're done. 
I, I, th- I have ethical concerns with the way you operate your business. Goodbye. Yeah. And be done with it. Huh. Could you, I mean, could you point to like a GitHub repository or something like that? If, so in other words, if you'd done stuff for public consumption, I right. suppose now, you could redirect that, them to something like that's that. That's a different question. Yeah. Uh, if somebody is asking me for for a code sample like on an open source project, yeah, I could point them to my GitHub right. user, uh, user account or to a, a repository I built. Uh, like I built a Wordle solver. Uh, when Wordle first came out, okay, <laughs> it was a brute force, terrible Wordle solver. But I was just like, how does this, how does this work? Sure, um, for fun, for fun, right? Yeah, that's what I do for fun is I write code. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's the kind of nerd I am. <laughs> so, but I wouldn't actually. I wouldn't send that to anybody as an example because it's garbage, but it works. Um, but yes, I think pointing someone to a, a GitHub repository where you have your own code, your own fun projects that you do, or your uh, some contributions to a an open source project that, that's fine yeah i don't have a problem with that but asking me for code that i've done at work i can't i can't abide that sure uh culture is huge constant training is better uh is is better for building a healthy security culture uh, i've been saying this now for a long time i think it's the data bears it out and that's why i've been saying it actually yeah uh and i'm glad to see this study and uh a beacon is people are are reinforcing this idea. Be open about what is being monitored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and depending on your state, this may actually be a legal requirement. You may have to tell your employees, hey, we're monitoring all this stuff. Um, I, hmm. I don't, I, I think I've heard of, uh, this is another question for Ben, uh, but I'd like to know where that is the case, but it, it wouldn't strike me, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you monitored somebody and then fired them, but never disclosed to them that you you were monitoring them, that you might have a wrongful termination suit on your hands. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of having uh, like an organizational wiki about security and monitoring, right? So that everyone in the organization knows. You know, you you can say we we monitor your web browsing, we monitor your email, we monitor you know all of this, right? As as we are uh, uh, allowed to, and and perhaps even obligated to do. Right. So, so there's no mystery. I, I don't like the idea of. Uh, I don't know, trying to keep your employees in line with fear and uncertainty. Yeah, I agree, <laughs> right? Just 100%. T- tell them what the expectations are and, and hold them to it, but, you know. I was working for a company, and as, as this company was maturing in its network process, they sent out an email that said, we're going to start monitoring everything that happens on our network. Yeah. Doesn't matter what it is, we're going to start monitoring and logging it. I, that's fine. Yeah. If that's what you're going to do, I appreciated the transparency of that company. Right. It was great. I agree. We all stopped playing video games at lunch. <laughs> okay. True story. <laughs> Culture is huge. Did I already say this? I did say this. Yeah. Yeah, never mind. Security is a balancing act uh, between productivity and security. Of course, we, we, we know this. Yeah. I can make every system in your office completely secure. All I have to do is turn them off. <laughs> right. Nobody's hacking it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not very useful. So there is this continuum that you have to move along. Uh, three recommendations. I like Abik's three recommendation. Trust and be transparent. Trust your employees. They they generally do. They are generally good people, and they're going to try to do things. Yeah. Be transparent. Be the good guy too, right? Um, training. The more frequent, the better. And uh, technology. And I like that he says it's last for a reason. Mm. Uh, your technology will absolutely not help you if one of your people is under the influence of a malicious outside actor. Mm-hmm. Your tech, all the technology in the world just goes right out the window. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. 
All right. Well, our thanks to Abik Mitra. Again, he is from Code42, and we will have a link to their data exposure report in the show notes. We appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.